Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. First thing I want to say is this, that this Foundations course, the whole idea behind it is that every lesson, as a, as a whole, there's a journey that we're going to go on through this Foundations course. I said to Siobhan, I realized something today as we were just talking about some things here, that there's a flow to this course that I didn't realize was there. It happened actually completely by accident, but it's a really beautiful thing. That if you look at the flow of the course and the lessons we're going to cover, we start with what is discipleship and worship and prayer and sanctification. And it all deals with sort of me and God and my relationship with God. And from there, we start dealing with church. What is church? And we deal with the believer's authority. In other words, how to use what Jesus has given me. And we get into money matters and giving and kingdom. And so the whole f focus kind of shifts from me to out. And it's a really beautiful flow. And it was quite by coincidence, so I can't claim that I planned it that way, but I'm really pleased about it. So that's kind of the journey we're going on. But every lesson for me is, is, is an opportunity for self-reflection. It's an opportunity for this foundational principle or fundamental of Christian living. How am I living that out in my everyday life? Because you'll know as well as I do, in the hustle and the bustle of life, there's some things we kind of know in our minds, but in reality, if we evaluate the fruit of our life and how we live it. How am I living this out? How am I practically, for example, on last week's lesson, following Jesus? How does that work itself out in my life? How do I do that at work? How do I do that, you know, in my family? Is there, have I learned how to follow Jesus? And so that's the beauty of this kind of thing. I can start identifying things in my life and saying, all right, I need to work on that or I need to change an attitude there or, and we can tweak and what's the goal? The goal is that our relationship with Jesus, the person of Jesus, gets deeper and becomes more tangible and more real. That I get to know Him in a deeper level and experience His grace and His love in a way that I never have before. That's the purpose. That's the goal. Amen? So as we go through the stuff, and maybe, maybe we get to a point or a lesson where there's, some, there's, there's a hiccup in your heart. You know what I mean by a hiccup in your heart? You know, you, you kind of hear someone, you go, hey. and... I'm, I, I struggle in that one. I want to encourage you. Come talk. Let's come talk. That's why I'm here. Let's talk about it. And through dialogue, we, we share things. We share hearts. That's the beauty of family. That's the beauty of being in a, in, a, in a spiritual home. Is that we get to talk and just dialogue and build relationship around a joint journey that we have focused on following this wonderful man called Jesus because of who he is and because of what he did for us. And we learn from each other. We learn from each other's strengths. We learn from each other's weaknesses. And we grow along the way. Amen? All right. Tonight we are going to be talking about worship. Worship. What a beautiful subject. What is worship? Well, that's well, obviously what we're going to define. But I thought, let's, let me ask you guys, how would you define worship? And what would you say worship is? Don't look at the notes. Don't cheat. So you guys heard that. We might as well pack up and, you know, that's the, folks, this is the gist of worship. You're all right. There's no wrong answer there. And worship can be expressed in a number of ways. The video I want you to play, I'll, in fact, let me play it first and then I'll elaborate on it a little bit more. This section is on worship. And we, we, we use that word a lot, usually when referring to singing, which is a form of worship, because the word worship means to really bow before someone. And so when we sing, we're coming in his presence and, and lifting him up. So that is a form of worship. But worship goes way beyond that. It goes to what do I bow to? For some of us, we really do worship ourselves because we just surrender to our feelings, our desires, our pleasures, and we go, whatever my body wants, I'm gonna go after that. Others, we worship things like popularity, and, and we just bow down to people and what they want. 
Um, some of us, we just want to fit into the culture or we worship the country or whatever else. But what God says is, look, I want to be your first allegiance. So worship means you surrender to me. You, you say my ways are best and you gladly come under that type of leadership. And at the core of worship, that's what it's all about. So I really like that. It's a really summarized version of this. I think what he says is really good. We all worship. We all worship. Not everybody worships God, but we all worship. Worship means I bow down to something. I yield to something. And if you look at, if you look at Hebrew worship throughout the Old Testament, and even if you bring it into the New Testament, the idea of bowing before something is intrinsic within the idea of worship. There is an element of submission and delight in worship. So let's get into our notes and start unpacking this a little bit. The purpose of this lesson is to gain a true understanding of what genuine worship is and to inspire believers to live lives as an expression of deep and sincere worship to God. The word worship has different meanings and connotations to different people. The general definition of worship would be something like a, re a reverent love and devotion accorded to a deity, an idol, a sacred object. So like I said, different people worship different things. There's a lot of religions out there that are all revolving around worship. Some are aimed at worshiping self, uh, attaining a level of inner peace, other a, a craven image, other a deity. But it's all about worshiping um, and giving honor to. Or worship could also be the ceremonies, prayers, or the re other religious forms by which love is expressed. If we start looking at the Bible to get a scriptural definition of worship, these are some of the things we'll discover. That worship is a natural expression of the life of a disciple involving every facet of his life. And that's one thing I want to highlight there. Worship is not something that is contrived. Worship is a natural expression. It is a natural response. So, for example, if... I went out and bought a fancy Bible, and I came and I gave it to Clive as a gift. The natural response would be, Thank you. you are most welcome. It would be thanks. So worship is a natural response of gratitude um, and recognition. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. Worship has to do with heart motivations. So it's an attitude of the heart. So that means although worship is something that is expressed, the expression in itself without the heart attitude is not worship. You understand what I mean? You can, you can, you can say things. Talk is cheap. My wife says that to me often. Why? Because her language, her love language is not words. So I can say nice things to her and she'll say, yeah, you're good with words. Talk is cheap. Don't tell me. Show me which is really inconvenient for me because words are really convenient and easy to put out, right? So you have to put your money where your mouth is. And it's kind of the same with worship. You know? And I'm sure you've experienced this. Man, I've experienced this leading worship where you, you're singing a song, but your focus is kind of somewhere else, either on something that's happened or on a transition or what you're doing. And your, your focus isn't actually on the lyrics of the song or the words of the song. You're disconnected from it. So true worship is not just something that is done, but it's an attitude that your heart carries towards God. It's far more than intent. In other words, it's not just, I'd like to worship God, or God knows my heart. We often say things like that, right? God knows my heart, or God understands. Worship goes beyond intent. Worship is both deliberate, and it's all-encompassing. So I deliberately worship. It's a decision that I make as a response and also, true worship is all-encompassing. What do I mean by that? I can't be a true worshiper of God in one facet or area of my life and then deny Him in another. I either worship God completely with who I am and what I am, or I don't. I can't have it both ways. True worship means that there is a longing within the heart that every motive and undertaking is done with the sole purpose of glorifying God. Now, that might sound like almost an unnatural thing. How do I keep my mind and my motivations in that pure and beautiful, almost euphoric state? I mean, it sounds really pretty and it, it preaches real good, but in the reality of day-to-day -day life, how do I do that? It doesn't seem possible. 
Well, let's look at how you and I were created in the very beginning, because then it starts giving us a different understanding of how worship can be expressed and what we were designed for. You'll notice that if you look at the whole creation story and right up to the fall, Adam was never commanded to worship. God never said to Adam, I want you to worship me. Between creation and the fall, worship is not even mentioned. Interesting. Now, worship forms a pretty big part of our lives. Worship forms a pretty big part of the Bible narrative. But it's not even mentioned in the original setting. Before the fall, Adam and Eve's lives and intimacy with God were the very expression of worship. You see, Adam and Eve were doing what they were created to do. And in so doing, were worshiping God. The greatest act or the greatest expression of worship is to express who God created you to be and to live a life of who He made you to be that expresses and reflects His glory. That's why worship for you, in some settings, is going to look different to worship in my life. You know, here's the funny thing. I'll, I'll give you a little confession, just in terms of singing songs in a, in a church setting. As a worship leader, I often encourage people in the congregation, come, let's clap our hands, or let's express, or let's jump up and down or something. But I, you want to know an honest truth, a real confession, the confessions of a worship pastor? When I'm in the congregation, I'm probably not going to be jumping up and down. I'm probably not going to be that guy dancing in the aisles, doing expressive worship things for God. That's just not me. My style of worship, personally, one and one, when the eyes are not on me, is, is, a, is a little more toned down. Does that, does that mean I'm acting when I'm up on the stage? No. I'm encouraging. I'm, I'm, I'm using my gift to help people express worship to God. And in some ways, in doing that, I'm glorifying God, not just by the worship or by the, the, the instrument I'm playing, but I'm doing things that I was created to do, that I was gifted to do. Who was that runner who ran in the Olympics and he, he wouldn't run on the Sunday? Um, you'll know this. Sorry? No, it wasn't him. It was a famous runner from years ago. He ended up being an evangelist. Oh, I wish I could remember his name now. Anyway, that fell flat pretty quickly. I really thought you guys would shout the name out at me. <laughs> didn't, didn't work. Do a, do a search for me, somebody. We've got, we've got to get this, because when I say the name, you guys are all going to be like, oh, right. Eric Little. Am I right? I've got a book about him on my, in my bookshelf there. Anyway, there was a guy once. <laughs> True story. I don't know what his name is anymore. Sorry? It is him, Eric Little. And he ran, okay, but now here's the funny thing about Eric Little, okay? Eric Little was an incredibly fast runner. He, he eventually became an evangelist. There was a lot of controversy because he was meant to run in the Olympics, and his event was scheduled, I think it was the 400 meters, was scheduled to be run on a Sunday. And according to his belief and his conviction, he would not run on a Sunday. That was his Sabbath day that belonged to God. So he ran in another event that he hadn't qualified for and ended up winning it. What made Eric Little pretty unique is that he didn't run in a conventional way. Eric Little's running style was eccentric would be polite. He used to run like this. Something like that. So he was quite a unique character in the way he ran. But yet he came out and said, God created me to run fast. And when I run... I feel his pleasure. And that's beautiful. That was a little embarrassing. <laughs> Anyhow, he said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Why? Because the man is doing something he was created to do in a very unique way. And he was good at it. So as we're talking about Adam and Eve, back, back to where I am, back to where we, we started off, Adam and Eve, by being and living out who God created them to be, were living in a fullness of worship that was bringing glory to God. 
because they were expressing Him back to Himself. They were created in His image. They were expressing creativity and, and authority that God had given them. And in so doing, they were bringing glory back to Him. So you know the story that what happens, Adam and Eve fall, they eat of the forbidden fruit, their eyes are opened, and immediately they're ashamed. So they go and hide themselves from God. So in the afternoon, you know the story, God comes to the garden and He says, Adam, Adam, where are you? Why did God call to Adam? Did, did, did God not know where Adam was? Was Adam that good at hide and seek? <laughs> You see, the point is that Adam wasn't doing what Adam was created to do. He wasn't worshipping. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean he wasn't sitting, bowing before God, singing songs? No, it means he wasn't doing what God created him to do. And we're going we're to trace that theme all the way through to Jesus' life as well. And then we're going to bring it back to you and I. Worship is an expression that naturally flows out of the life of a believer that has been born again and filled with the life and the presence of God, who lives his life in such a way that it is an expression of the gifts and the anointing and the calling and the, the creativity that God has placed in them uniquely. And as they live that out, it brings glory to God. If you turn in your Bibles, you can write this reference in there while we make the point to Ephesians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 10. It says this, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, that word workmanship is, is a word that if you had to take it back down to its root, it means that we are a poem written by God. Now, why is a poem significant? A poem is not a, it's not a, a, a story. A poem is not... A, just a normal book or a novel or an instruction manual. A poem is something which takes thought and effort. It is lyrical. It is written in a certain way, but it is emotive. It doesn't matter if you go back to, 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 to poetry from the Shakespearean era or you go back to how far you want to go back, or even modern poetry, which sounds a lot more like rap than it does like poetry. Poetry, by its very nature, it's emotive. It expresses something. And this scripture says that you are God's poem. And he created you for something, for a good work. And as you live that out, as you discover that, those works, you bring glory to God. Your very life becomes an act of worship. So immediately our base understanding of worship as being an expression, while that is true, we've got to see that that is a very small part of what worship is. That worship is something I can do every day just as I live out my life with a certain heart attitude before God. How many of you have heard of a thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith? <laughs> it was something that was drawn up in 1646 at the Westminster Assembly as part of the Westminster Standards to be a confession of the Church of England. It became and remains the subordinate standard of doctrine in the Church of England, Scotland, and has been influential within Presbyterian churches worldwide. And the, the whole Westminster Confession of Faith begins with this statement, begins with this question. What is the chief end of man? Rearticulated slightly differently. Why are we here? What is the purpose? What is my purpose? And their answer is this. The chief, or man's chief end is A, to glorify God and B, to enjoy Him forever. That is the... By, after examining Scripture and saying, what's it all about? Why are we here? We are here... Let me put it another way. Man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Isn't that incredible? By enjoying Him forever. Would you say God is an enjoyable person? I mean, it'd be pretty good to be in His presence, right? Wouldn't you agree with me on that one? Yeah. I want to swing that one completely on its head for you. And I want you to just think of something slightly differently. God created you, you and I for worship and for fellowship. 
He created you for worship. He created you for fellowship. That means that God thinks you are a great person to be around. God loves to spend time in your presence. God is crazy about you. I think it was Max Lucado who said, if God had a, a fridge, your photo would be on it. If God had a wallet, your photo would be in it. Face it, believer. He's crazy about you. That's Max Lucado. Some people are great to be around because they make you feel better about yourself. God is one of those people. But I want to tell you this. When we accept His love and begin to, to worship Him by our lifestyle, by just being who He's created us to be, we, we come into that place where God delights in spending time with us. He just loves us. He created you for intimacy. Isn't that incredible? Let's look at this. So the, the, the chief end of man, they say, is two things here, like we said, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So let's look at the first one. Psalm 60, uh, 86, verse 9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and, and shall glorify your name. In other words, every nation will acknowledge you are God and will glorify you. Romans eleven thirty six, For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. See, of Him you are made of God, through God, for God. Isn't that a beautiful realization? 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, let's pause for a second. The word therefore, what's another way of saying that? Because of this. So in other words, if I put in the word therefore into a sentence, I make a statement and I say, therefore, it means because of the statement I have just made. Now what's the first statement he makes there? He says, you were bought with a price. What, is, what does that mean? What is the interpretation of that? If you were bought with a price, what does that mean? You could be, yes, you could be grateful for it. You have value. Very good. You didn't come cheap. But Megan's, Megan's hit the head of what I was getting at. Those are really beautiful things, by the way. If you've been bought with a price, it means you're paid for and you no longer belong to yourself. You've been paid for. You've been bought with a price. And because of this, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, this takes us back to our first lesson in discipleship. If anyone desires to follow me or come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so the whole, the whole ethos here in terms of worship is realizing that I have been bought with a price. I don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to somebody else. Therefore, the natural expression or the natural outworking of that realization is that I live my life in such a way that I bring glory to God, as it says here, in my body and in my spirit. So the first part is to bring glory. And the second part is to enjoy God forever. Folks, there's, there's a perception out there in the world that God is mad at us, that God is angry with the world. Every Every natural disaster that happens is interpreted as God's judgment on this. And, uh, you know, this, this, this kind of stuff is really prevalent in the United States. You know, every little God's about to judge America because of its abortion policy, or they're going to judge America because of this or that. Folks, God's judgment and His wrath has been poured out on Jesus. There is a judgment day that is coming, but God is not looking at you with a... He's not, a, he's not an evil kid with a magnifying glass, and you are not the ant. That's kind of an analogy you know, we have with God. He's just waiting to, to zap us when we do wrong. God's not mad at us. God loves you. That's why Jesus came, so that our sins could be forgiven and we could enjoy Him in this life and forevermore. God enjoys your presence. Have you ever, if you're a parent, you'll understand this with your kids. Maybe there's other relationships in your life where you would just really love to spend time with somebody and you just, you just feel the walls are up. There's no vulnerability on their part towards you. They, they, they're, they're withholding from you. And that's a terrible feeling when your heart is, and your motives are pure. and You really just want to love that person and 
talk to them and share your life with them, but there's nothing coming back. I think that's very often how God feels with us because he's, to he's torn down every barrier except those which we choose to erect. And so the whole idea is that God wants us to enjoy Him because He wants to enjoy us. So let's look at a few scriptures that speak into that. Psalm 16, verse 5 to 11. Our Lord, you are the portion... Oh, sorry. Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night sessions. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, so we have that word again. In other words, because of all these wonderful things, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Isn't that beautiful? What does God invite us into? Joy, peace, pleasures forevermore. What does that mean? We're not going to have any struggles in this life? No, that's not what it says. But it says that basically the understanding is that even in the midst of those things, you will experience God's peace and His joy and His pleasure, both now and forevermore. Psalm 114, verse 15. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Philippians 4.4. 4, Rejoice in the Lord when things are good. Or when you feel like it. It says rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, and in case you didn't get it again, I'll say rejoice. It's a very interesting word. It speaks of exuberant delight. It really does mean jump up and down. Literally, it means jump up and down and celebrate and be happy in God and who your God is. Worship belongs to God. It's a manifestation of the worth that we place on Him. A lot of people define worship as worthship. We ascribe to God that which is due to Him. The Bible says that blessing and honor and glory and power belong to Him. He is worthy of them. God is worthy of worship, not for what, only for what He has done, but for who He is. And I've got a couple of questions for you. If God did not do one more thing for you, would He still be worthy of worship? The answer? Yes, because He is God. He is altogether perfect and wonderful and lovely and good. If God had never done anything for you, would He still be worthy of worship? Because He is God. He is the Creator. So the point is this. Our very existence ought to be an expression of worship back to God, ministering to Him. Derek Prince says, Worship belongs to God. The act of worship is the supreme way by which we acknowledge that He is our God. And there we have that picture of Submission, that picture of bowing down, of acknowledgement. One of the things that worship does in our attitude and in our heart is that it is acknowledges that you are God and I am not. Very often in the way we live our lives, we go about our days as though we are God. What do I mean by that? We call the shots, we decide how we want to live, where we're going to go, what we're going to do, without, with very little consultation. We run our lives as though we are in charge of them. What worship helps us do is align our hearts again and again with discipleship, with following Jesus. And it's not a burdensome, horrible thing. Sure, there's self-denial in it, but there's a joy in the self-denial because of who it is that we worship. And we bring our lives into this place again and again as we worship where we say, you are God, I am not. I am needy of your goodness and your grace. Speaking about worship, as we go to point four, Jesus made a statement about worship, which 
is kind of like a compass for us to help us evaluate and orientate our hearts in an attitude of worship. John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24 says, Jesus, write, Jesus says, oh, Jesus writes, he didn't write it, but he did speak it. He says, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The first thing I want to draw from that is the realization that God is seeking those he will worship, who, who will worship him. God is looking for worshipers. I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a scripture that says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In other words, those who have a worshipful attitude towards God, God is searching and he's looking for them. And he's looking for them because he wants to reveal himself and show himself strong on their behalf, in their situation, whatever it is that they may be facing or going through. It's a beautiful understanding that our worship of God unlocks something in the heavenlies that imparts something back to us. You know, some people would say, if I was to command you to worship me, that would be highly arrogant, don't you think? I'd be pretty self-absorbed, narcissistic to expect you to worship me. Why then does God command us to worship him? Why does God, you know, is God really that full of himself? Is God really that emotionally insecure that he is needing our praise to worship him? No, of course not. But the reality of his command to worship us is for our benefit. And there's two reasons for that. The more I worship God, the bigger he becomes in my sight. So the more I focus on a problem, the bigger that problem becomes. The more I magnify God and I focus on his greatness, the more that is magnified in my heart and in my life. And what happens as a result, faith and strength rise up in me and minister to me so that I can then overcome these other things that are around me. The more I focus on worshiping God, because here's the thing, folks, we can never exhaust the greatness of God. We can never worship to a point where God's going to go, okay, that's enough. Now you're really flattering me and taking it. We're never going to reach that point. So in terms of our, our, our seeking and our heart attitude to worship and magnify God and acknowledge His greatness and goodness, all of that gets, ma get, gets ministered back to us and ministers strength to us. But there's another aspect of this as well. There's an aspect of, let's say I, I drink a cup of coffee. We all enjoy coffee, right? Is there anybody here, any heathen among us that... that <laughs> just kidding. I didn't mean it. So part of, I mean, you, you, there are those days when you have just a cup, that's a really good cup of coffee. And there's the joy of actually drinking the coffee and experiencing the coffee. And that ministers joy to you in so many ways. But there's also something of when you're taking a sip and you go, oh, that's a good cup of coffee. The acknowledgement of that cup of coffee being good is the fulfillment of your joy in the experience of that cup of coffee. Sharing that information with other people to magnify the greatness of that cup of joy enhances your experience of that cup of coffee. And in the same way, our articulation of worship to God fulfills our joy in who He is. It brings our joy to completion. Jesus says that I will give you my joy, that your joy, that, that your joy may be full. Joy that is experienced in isolation has a measure to it. But joy that is shared and expressed has a fullness to it. And that's one of the things that worship ministers back to us. So God is seeking for us to worship. He is looking for worshipers. He is seeking them out who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, if God is looking for true worshipers... Because it says, 
The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Spirit, uh, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True worshipers implies what? That you can also have false worshipers. What is false worship? Well, those who do not worship God according to the truth or even according to the prescribed pattern. They, there's, there's different kinds of worship that is not true worship. You have ignorant worship. What is that? That is worshiping what you do not know. It's actually a portion of Scripture. I think Paul writes it. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship who we know. Some people worship God, who they think is God, but he's a figment of their imagination. He's a God that they've decided when they read the Bible, they will interpret certain things about him in a certain way, but they'll interpret other things in a different way because that doesn't kind of fit right with how they, it makes them feel. So as soon as the Word of God confronts something in their life, they'll, you know, we know God didn't really mean that. And they make God out to be something that's in their mind that they can manage. That's ignorant worship. You are trying to create a figment of your own imagination, and you are not worshiping God according to the truth. You also have intelligent worship. What does that mean? That means I worship God with my mind. I mentally assent to Him. I read the Bible and I understand it from a natural point of view. But spiritual connection and the the transfer of spiritual life spiritual communication with God and spiritual reception, receiving the fullness of His joy, receiving His Holy Spirit in power is absent. My worship of God becomes a list of do's and don'ts. It becomes a list of religious routines rather than a deep and an intimate relationship. That is not true worship because the Bible says He wants to worship in spirit and in truth. You have spiritual worship, Holy Spirit-inspired worship flowing from the recreated spirit of man. And this is the fruit of genuine salvation. This is true worship. So if you go and you look at the fruit of the Spirit, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. The understanding when you read that portion of Scripture is we would think that the fruit of the Holy Spirit are love, joy, peace, etc., But the true understanding of that is that the fruit of the recreated human spirit, the evidence that Jesus lives inside you, is that you will have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, working themselves in your heart and in your attitudes both towards God and towards yourself and towards those around you, and there becomes fruit. There's a natural outworking and a natural response What would you call that? In the eyes of God, that is worship. That is a manifestation of His life within you, rediscovering who God created you to be in the first place, His original intention, and beginning to live out of the fullness of that place. What higher higher act of worship could we muster? In the same way that our eyes perceive light and our ears perceive sound, our spirit man is created to perceive and to have fellowship with the spiritual God. Derek Prince says, Worship is a spiritual union. The only way our spirits can unite directly with God. Out of this union, there comes fruitfulness, and in the spiritual, just as in the physical, the union leads to reproduction. It leads to growth. The more I commune with God in an intimate way, the more His character will, be, will reproduce itself in me. And ultimately, want the more I conform to His image, I will end up being a conduit through which that nature and character will be reproduced in others. So, for example, just in terms of worship in a church environment, you will ex- have experienced that sometimes in a corporate setting, the worship of those around you lifts and changes the atmosphere to a place which is above what you may be. You can sense the presence of God there. They are reproducing in the atmosphere what is going on within their hearts, and you can feel it. It's a tangible thing, and it moves you, 
It draws you with them into worship. They are reproducing in you what is going on in their own hearts. It's a beautiful thing. That's why the corporate anointing is such a strong and magnificent thing. There's a reproduction of worship that happens, a reproduction that spills over and blesses everybody in the place. To worship in truth means, and I'm going to read the sub-point first, it refers to worship that is founded upon the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. So it's based on the truth of who Jesus is. But more than that, and upon that, true worship means that I worship with sincerity. That what I'm saying with my mouth and the attitude I'm trying to, and the, the acts I'm trying to do on the outside are the overflow of what is truly going on within my heart. That I am not worshiping God on the outside, but my heart be far from Him. That's not worship at all. I've put a point there. I've said that a deception that is prevalent within the church today is that we can engage in worshiping God and leave feeling satisfied but unchanged. In other words, that we can have an emotional experience with God that moves us for a moment but doesn't change who we are, doesn't shift our lives into a direction closer uh, in a closer walk with Jesus. I want you to understand in saying that I am not against emotions. I'm not against having emotional experiences in worship. I think that is wonderful. Emotions are a beautiful thing that God gives us to experience life, to experience pain and joy, to experience suffering and elation and delight. These are all wonderful things. Imagine life without emotion. And I believe that our worship of God should be filled with emotion, exuberant emotion. But if that's all it is, we've missed the point. And we can come to a church experience. I think so much of what church life has become today is an experience. We come to a Sunday experience. We maybe have an emotional counter with the Word of God or with the people of God, but our spirits haven't been touched. We haven't been changed. We haven't been true. We, there's no repentance that takes place. Repentance is not just admission of guilt. Repentance is a changing of the heart and mind to pursue a different direction towards God. Worship, if we go back to our original understanding of it, is a life that is focused in a certain direction. And when we come together in a corporate setting, like we, even, even as we are here tonight, listening to the Word of God, it's an opportunity for us to align our lives with worship so that our lives begin to, to, to resemble a dance that, that, that is performed to the rhythm of God's heart, if you want to put it that way. It begins to be not only be inspired by Him, but conformed into His image. Amen? When we truly worship, we are not only touched, but we are changed. Let me pause for a second, because we've been going for a good 40 minutes or so. And let me ask at this point, is there, are there any questions, any comments? All right, I have a question. Should we carry straight on, or do you guys want to take five? <laughs> Let's take five minutes. Get up, stretch your legs, and we're going to jump straight back in again. I want to share a scripture with you before we... Let me get it from the hard copy here. So back into our, our train of thinking, talking about worship being an ultimate expression of what we, who and what we are created for. Um, Matthew chapter 15, there's a portion of scripture where Jesus says, hypocrites, from verse 7, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's some heavy stuff there, isn't it? These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips. In other words, there's an expression of worship that comes out in a certain setting, but in their life, in the depths of their heart, their heart is far from me. 
And he says that, that kind of wor- those kind of worshipers worship in vain. Hmm? They frustrate you. I don't know if they frustrate God. I think they grieve the heart of God. You see, God's heart to you is to bless, is to enjoy, and to experience the fullness of His life. And when you worship Him with just outward acts, the problem is that we deceive ourselves, and we think that we're somehow pleasing God. Many people yoke worship with pleasing God, that when I bring God worship and I sing songs to Him, I am pleasing Him. That way of thinking means that I can please God with what I can do. My works can bring pleasure to God. We're going we're gonna to unveil that one a little bit later, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. I wanted to share that with you because that scripture is not in the notes, but it's one worth, worth noting because just because people or just because even I myself come on a Sunday or from time to time I mouth words off to God, that doesn't mean my life is a melody of worship to Him. That means I'm saying some things. Those things may well come from a heart and be in alignment with, with what's truly going on inside, but not necessarily. Point number five, worship is born of revelation and faith. Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it is impossible to please Him. So what is the one thing that God looks for in you and I to please Him? What is the one thing we can do that brings pleasure to the heart of God? Trust Him. Have faith. Believe that He is who He says and do what He says. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, that He is what? That He is God. And that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. What blesses God is when we believe not only that He is God, but that when when we come to Him with a spirit of expectancy, that He will reward us. Not for anything that we've done, but just because we actually seek Him for who He is. It doesn't say that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek His promises or who diligently seek the gifts. He's the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That's the essence of worship. So true and genuine worship is founded upon a revelation of God and Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. You can't willingly submit to someone that you do not believe in and love because submission involves sacrifice. Would you agree with me? Submission involves sacrifice. And you will not do that for somebody that you do not trust and do not love. Therefore, it is impossible to live the life and walk the walk of a disciple following Jesus without an attitude and a heart of worship towards Him. Because how can I submit to Him and trust Him if there's not worship towards Him and an acknowledgement of who He is? So they go hand in hand. Worship is such a fundamental part of our life as, as Christians. So the point I make then, 5.2, is revelation of the Godhead naturally inspires worship. So let's actually go to the Scriptures. I was going to say for the sake of time, let's, I was just going to articulate the stories to you. But you know what? We're not in a hurry here. Let's go into these Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6. If you have your Bible, open it up there. And we're going to read from verse 1 to 8. And this is the experience of Isaiah the prophet. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above it it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory." And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's pause. Isaiah had what we would probably refer to as a vision. He had an experience where God took him to a place where he had an experience with God and saw something that transformed his life. He saw the throne of God. He saw his voice, the voices of the angels crying, Holy... When the Bible repeats anything, it repeats it for emphasis. That's why Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. This is really important. So here we have a triple repetition. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. It, it puts emphasis on the magnitude of who He is. And here is the result, verse 5. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs, uh, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, Lord, or here am I, send me. So we, ha we see that this encounter with God brought out a lot of stuff in Isaiah. The first thing that happened was he had a realization of who he was. When you have a realization of who God is, you will have a realization of who you are. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And the same is in our salvation story where Jesus steps in and he takes care of our sin and iniquities and washes it and wipes it away. In the, in the same narrative here, the angel comes and cleanses his lips and says, your lips are now clean. You have been cleansed. And the response of that is not, thank you, I've been cleansed. The response is he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And the response is worship. Now, the worship wasn't expressed in, oh, God. he didn't join the angels and go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His response was, here I am. This is what you created me for. Send me. Beautiful. Let's take a look at another example. Saul, Acts chapter 9. We all know the Apostle Paul. Not all of us know he used to be Saul. After his transformation, he was sorely missed. <laughs> Acts 9, verse 1 to 9. We, we read the encounter. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. So so that if he found any who were of the way, whether man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So let me just explain to you the context here. Paul was a Pharisee. He hated the Christians, those who were of the way. He felt they were an abomination, that Jesus was not the Messiah, and he made it his life's mission to persecute the body of Christ. Those who were of the way is what they were called at that stage. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So this light shines from heaven. What does he do? Prostrates himself on the ground. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembled and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you see the same thing here? Jesus comes into the midst. He reveals to him what's really going on. And the response is what? What do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and his eyes were opened, and he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and and, and brought him to Damascus, into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now turn in your Bibles to verse 17, a little bit further down. And Ananias went his way. So God calls this man Ananias and says, I'm going to send you to Saul. I want you to go and pray for him. Ananias says, God, you got the wrong man. Are you sure? This is the guy who's been breathing threats at us, who's coming to kill us. And God says, that's the man. You just go and do it. Verse 17, And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was, he rose and was baptized. 
So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues and he, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the one who destroyed those who called on this, on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Would you say that Paul was created to do that? That's why God made him. And Jesus met him on the road in a very... I love the way Jesus does it. He doesn't say, Paul, you bad boy, and he doesn't condemn you. He just said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? You're having a pretty torrid time right now. You're pretty angry, you're pretty frustrated, you're pretty bent up, and you're hurting a lot of people. How's that working for you? And so anyways, he has this experience with Jesus. Both Isaiah and, and Paul, or Saul at the time, had an encounter with Jesus, a revelation of who he is with God, that revealed to them who they were and produced in them the response of worship, acknowledging that He is God, I am not, and aligning my heart in such a way to bring glory and honor to Him. God, what do you want? I will go for you. I will do what you want. That, folks, is the essence of worship. Brokenness and submission are the fruit of a heart of worship. Point number six. The heart of worship is one that allows God to glorify Himself through us. It doesn't allow us to glorify God through self-effort. It it submits to Him and allows Him to do in us and through us what He desires, and in so doing, He brings glory to Himself. The way that this can happen is if our, sorry, the only way that this can happen is if our lives are completely submitted to Him. That brings us back to discipleship, lesson number one. This is a willing yielding that is born of a response to God's unconditional love, His forgiveness, and acceptance. Remember we spoke about the response? It's a willing yielding. You see, folks, there is a cost to discipleship, and we spoke about it last week. There's a cost to following Jesus. But it is a price I am so happy and willing to pay because of who he is and the love that he's, that he's given me. Paul says, all these things I count as loss. I count them as rubbish, as garbage for the excellence of knowing you. The only of areas of our lives in which God can receive glory are those areas that are submitted completely to his lordship. This perpetual journey of surrender is the essence of worship, which we've been talking about. It involves willing and reverent submission that leads to joyous release and empowerment. And it is only through this process that God is glorified. So let me, let me, say something, let me bring you back. Jesus said to his disciples, I can do nothing of myself, only what I see my Father doing. Then he talks to them, about the parable of the vine and the, and, the, and, the, and the vine dresser. And he says, you can of yourself do nothing. And I, that same theme throw, flows through in this act of worship. Only through our act of surrendering to God and allowing Him to do in us and through us what He desires are we able to bring forth a life that brings worship and honor and glory to Him. I cannot manufacture worship that is going to be pleasing to God but I can yield my heart to His Spirit to work in me and produce a very natural response that doesn't have to be conjured up. It's not just all goosebumps and feelings. Sometimes it is a deliberate choice. Remember, we spoke about worship being deliberate choice. It is a response to His Spirit working in me. Worship without brokenness and faith is nothing more than flattery leading to self-deception. That's quite a statement. Worship without brokenness and faith in God is nothing more than flattery. We flatter ourselves and we flatter God and we lead to self-deception. But what is the deception? The deception is that I think that through these acts and through what I'm doing, I'm bringing glory and pleasure to God, but I'm not. I'm deceived. God doesn't want our gifting. He's given that to us. 
God doesn't want your gift. He gave you your gift. <laughs> what he wants is your heart expressed through your gift. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He will not share praise with anyone, and he will not share your heart with anyone. That's what covenant is all about. We understand covenant even just in marriage. These two beautiful people here have a covenant with one another. That means she's the only one. That means he's the only one. <laughs> Not the response you want. Oopsie, she said. <laughs> Touche, I like that. Well done. <laughs> he says, only one. I commit to you forever, for the rest of my life, till death do us part. And that is what our journey with God is. I will worship you forever. You're the only one. God will not share you with anyone else. The measure to which we are surrendered to God is the measure to which we can experience His love and His goodness. It determines the measure to which we can conform to His likeness, in other words, become more like Him, and it determines our effectiveness as disciples and ambassadors of His kingdom. Again, why? Because I can't do this myself. I can't produce kingdom life in myself, but I can yield to the one who can. I can submit to Him. I can cooperate with Him. This is why, folks, Christianity is not a religion. It's not works. It's not a bunch of tasks that you can perform to, to, to achieve a certain result. It's a relationship with God that works itself out in wonderful and beautiful ways. Worship equals obedience. Pastor Andreas has said this a few times, and it left a mark on my life. He said, you cannot make up through sacrifice what you lose through disobedience. In other words, you cannot think that you can, on a, on a Sunday morning or in a quiet time, you know, conjure up some kind of worship to God and live your life any old way. Worship is expressed through doing what you were created to do. That's why Paul writes, he says, do not give your members or yourself to works of unrighteousness, but give yourself, your body and your members to works of righteousness. This is what you were called for. This is your purpose. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. The greatest act of worship, the highest act of worship that you and I can have or give to God is obedience. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is not some conditional thing. Jesus is just saying, if you love me, the natural expression of your love will be that you keep my commandments. Obedience is the fruit of worship. 1 John 5 verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. Doesn't that articulate so beautifully the essence of worship? I worship God, I love Him, therefore I keep His commandments, and they're not a problem for me to keep. They're not a burden on me. They're a joy and a delight. Jesus never led a special praise and worship service to give glory to God. Interesting, hey? He simply lived his life in obedience to Him. John 17, verse 4. Listen to this verse. Now, if you... Let me just pause before we read that verse. If we go back to Adam and Eve, talking about worship being an expression of what you were created to do, Look at what Jesus says. I have glorified you on the earth. How has he done that? He hadn't even died yet. He says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. I have done what you sent me here for. I can't exactly say that I've done what you created me to do because he was kind of creator. But everything that God, everything that Jesus did was the fulfillment. Who Jesus was was the fulfillment of who he was created to be. And in so doing, he brought, he brought glory to God. Who he came to be, not created to be. From this portion of Scripture, it's easy to see that genuine worship is much more than a ritual performed or a song sung. It is the very purpose for which we were created. So what is the, what is the conclusion? Worship is an attitude of heart that must be expressed. 
Worship is a lifestyle born from a heart motivation that is purposefully focused on bringing glory and honor to God through willing surrender. I love this verse in Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, everything I can do can be an act of worship. Worship is not about us. It's all about glorifying God. So let's read the personal application. It says, although worship can be expressed through song, through service and obedience, it begins in the heart. Now that we understand that worship is an attitude of the heart, endeavor to find ways in which you can make every action or task an expression of the love of God as an act of obedience and worship towards Him. I hope that as we've gone through this lesson, your idea and understanding of what worship is has expanded beyond the four walls of a church, beyond your, your prayer closet, beyond a praise and worship session. Those are all wonderful, and they're great to come together and express worship to God through song and through gifts and through creative means. But those ought to be an expression of what is already going on in our lives every single day as we obey God, as we follow Him, and as we live out our calling and our destiny, as unique as it is to us, we bring glory to God. That's the essence of worship. Amen? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.